Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today it is my amazing privilege and honor to have not just a very very dear friend but a very accomplished entrepreneur Peter Ivany from Sydney, Australia with me. Peter, welcome to the show. Ashutosh, thanks very much. Pleased to be with you. Thank you. Peter uh, was recently awarded the member of the order which is AM from the Australian government. I'm going to ask Peter about this. He is the chairman of the Ivany Investment Group, the person behind the success of Hoyt's Cinemas which had 450 cinemas. He's a member of the Sydney Cricket Sports Ground Trust. He's the chairman of NIDA, he's the chairman of Sydney Swans. And what I have always found very fascinating is after doing so many amazing things and giving so much back to society, he decided to invest in a new Sydney Zoo. <laughs> so, Peter tell me, and of course, we will talk a little bit about Peter's parents uh, who uh, migrated to Australia after the Holocaust. So what would you say are three key milestones in your career or life? I think, you know, the biggest milestone in your life is your family. There's no question because, and in a way, as you get older, that's the legacy that you, you're leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, from my point of view, the biggest milestone was parents who came as refugees mm-hmm. who had battled their whole lives in a system they couldn't understand. And I found a way to sort of get through that barrier. Um, to a point that when I was growing up, just to be a member of the Melbourne Cricket Ground would have been, uh, I would have called that a huge success. And then to actually be on the board of the Trust at Sydney Ground, it's just a recognition of what a wonderful society is and the opportunities that it can give you in one generation. So, you know, part of that's, I guess, the business success. We took a small company, Hoyts, with 30 screens. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it was 450 cinemas, but 2,200 screens in 12 countries. And you know, that was just really living a dream for a period. But that stopped when I was 44. And so then I had to create, uh, there's a long way to go in life. The runway was, uh, just, there's a long way to go. So there's a lot of things that you could uh, do. But I, I was very fortunate that at 43, 44, I had choices. And, and that's when I decided that half of my future life would be business because that you need to stay in the system to keep your skills sharp, to have enough you know, a financial backing to be able to do the philanthropic things that I've done. And then on the philanthropic side, I've stuck to my real main interest, which is the Jewish community, sport, film and art. So I've, uh, I've found ways through that and they've, they've been, uh, they've given hopefully some others um, some benefit as well as just me. But I, I really feel I've had a huge benefit to be able to explore and go into different areas. Fantastic. So before I get into discussions about you, I want to talk a little bit about your parents. I mean, tell me about the journey. You know, you were sharing with me, you know, they moved to Australia after the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, um, my, my parents married in Australia, so they're both refugees. My father came out in 1949. My mother came out in 1951. And they married in 53. And in 54, I arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was, uh, was incarcerated in Auschwitz for 10 and a half months. He had choices. He could have jumped off the train when they were taking the transport down, but he knew that they would sort of kill his parents. Mm-hmm. He was separated from his parents at um, Birkenau at the platform, exactly as you see in the films. 
He then was, uh, he worked in Auschwitz, which was the work camp, it was in camp number six, which everyone will recognize by, that's where all the shoes were mm -hmm. after the war. Wow. He had some terrible jobs that I won't go into now mm -hmm. and some really horrific experiences. At the end of it, he came out, he was 32 kilo. That defeated him with an eyedropper. He went back to his village, someone had taken his house, and then he had to go to Romania to, with his sister, who's, who's, she was married, and uh, they had a house, and then slowly, through the help of the Red Cross and refugee groups and whatever, he, um, he, he lived for another, you know, for a number of, he lived through that period, and he then lived in Paris for a year, and then he found his way to Australia. Um, my mother, she would feel a bit guilty because she had an easy life, but she went through a work camp in Vienna and Austria. And she was also very fortunate in that um, there was two buses going one day. One bus was going to a concentration camp and the other bus was going to the work camp. Mm -hmm. They suggested that she take the concentration camp. And my mother was always a very questioning woman. So if they want me there, I'm going to the other one. Yeah. And that saved her life. But you can imagine both of them through the war were 19 years of age, one from Hungary and one from Czechoslovakia. And... That definitely formed their lives. And as uh, my father said to me when in one of the Spielberg interviews, uh, they asked him, did this change your life? He goes, I can't tell you how much, but it's definitely a permanent change. So, you know, I grew up in Australia as a first-generation Australian and, um, and I've been very fortunate from that point of view. So at least the family beyond the war had a lot of luck coming to a great country like Australia. Fantastic. And I think a lot goes... You know, about this goes to the credit of Australia for having really embraced two refugees and allowed all of you to thrive so much. Fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, let's come Australia to has more Holocaust survivors per capita than any other per capita than any other country outside of Israel. Incredible. Wow, I didn't know that. Thank you. So, you know, coming back to now work, Peter, you know, from entertainment to sports to investments in a zoo to philanthropy, how do you manage your time? amongst so many diverse activities? Well, you become a bit of a generalist, I have to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so you definitely rely on people. And, and everyone says that. But to have great people who you can then get them to think like you because you want them to be able to stand up to you when you're wrong. But you definitely want you, you know, formed a way to go that they follow they work with you. So the hardest thing is to pick the people that not only are good, but can work with you and understand your vision and, and be with you. So that's, that, that's definitely the people side's the biggest. Okay. And the next thing is you have to have a vision mm -hmm. and you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself to have a vision and people will follow a vision. But um, you, you have to, uh, and they, they sort of embrace your vision. So it's, it's important then to focus on big things. So if you're a meticulous, detailed person, which I'm not, Mm -hmm. Then you get bogged down in the details and you can't, you know, you can't sort of work through the major things. So in a way, that's a, a virtue and a fault. Because I look at any organisation I go, where will we be in three years and five years? And I have these big grand plans. Often people next to me are very polite but think they're a bit off the charts. But somehow or other, we get there. If you have small plans, you'll definitely achieve those. Um, and not only that, you won't probably get them. So if you have bigger plans, you'll be further along the track. So I think that's really important. And, um, and finally, if you put yourself out in a number of different areas, you start to gain some confidence beyond your immediate area. I remember when I left Hoyts, 
I had a few skills, but really I could do movie theatre, so I knew a bit about property, a bit about film. And since then, I've had to learn about hotels, I've had to learn about video, I've had to learn about animals in the zoo, I've had to learn about leasing, I've had to learn about a backpacker business that we had. And then, of course, you know, as an investor, you've got to learn about technology and, and things that really inspire people like fixed interests, which I won't bore your listeners with. But, you know, you need some safe investments as well to make sure that the more imaginative ones um, can prosper. But... Um, you have to reinvent yourself. I mean, I think it's really important. And I mean, big words come out of this virus like pivot and unprecedented, but everything's unprecedented. The future's always different and we're always pivoting and we're always, and you've got to be not, you've got to be proactive, but not overly proactive, if you know what I mean. Like you don't have to panic before the problems arrived, but you've got to be able to at least see and have a bit of a plan B. And if something changes radically, then you have to be able to adjust. So you need parts of your business to adjust. So, But it all doesn't work unless you've got terrific people. So if you're bogged down with the detail of operating all these businesses, mm-hmm. you really haven't got time to adjust and think your way through it and to manoeuvre. So I think the next point to do a lot of things, you need a fair bit of flexibility. And then, Because what tends to happen if you're working on six or seven major things at once, mm-hmm. one or two of them will take more of your time than the others. And so... You, the worst position to be in is when you've got two or three of them not going well at the same time and then you've got real difficulties and then you really have to get better people or you've got to find other solutions. So it's a combination, but it's also it's a personality thing. I quite like, you know, waking up in the morning and worrying about art one minute, film the next, animals the next, fixed interest, the technology market. I'm really interested in politics and what's going around me. So I quite like it. But I've had a number of my friends who just, they, they prefer to be an expert in their own area or like a number of my friends in my age now, mm-hmm. that their expertise is taking five strokes off their golf handicap and that's a three-day week exercise. So Amazing. I'd rather keep the five strokes and do other things. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit now about the Ivory Investment Group. Yeah. What do you look for before you make an investment? In, in our business... All businesses, rule number one is have enough cash, and that's cash flow and cash. Mm-hmm. So we underpin our business with solid lending on assets that produce cash, whether they be property, fixed interest bonds, that's a real underpinning of our business. And we work with people in that area, whether they're investment banks or, well, they're principally investment banks that we rely and trust. And so they, they create the cornerstone of our business. We then uh, have a technology technology arm because we recognise that even with with or without COVID, mm-hmm. that disruption's permanent. That you know, cutting out the, the the middle person, the intermediaries, and global scaling is just a absolute fundamental part of uh, our economic future. Whether you're in America or China, mm-hmm. Europe or Asia, anywhere, it's part of it. So we've got a fund management business that works in that. That I'm. You know, that I work with uh, with with, uh, with uh, Alex Pollockin and we do some work in that. But we also, um, a lot of my investments in other private equity businesses really focus on, on technology. Mm. And then I guess the final piece of the business is private equity. And I tend to try to focus on businesses where I can provide some expertise like IMAX and we have our backpacker and hotel business. My parents were originally in the hotel business. And of course, now the zoo, which... I have a lot of expert in bringing people into entertainment and venues. I do that through the sport as well. 
in animals for a person who wasn't even allowed to have a dog till three years ago that we bought the farm. It was quite a new venture for the animal side of it. So obviously other people with more expertise than me managed that. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that was a good, it's a little bit of a hobby. It's a good social private enterprise. I mean, it sort of cost us a bit more than probably we thought it would at the time. Mm-hmm. So it has to have some financial underpinning now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from my point of view, I think if we got a, you know, I wouldn't even want to, you know, of course, we always want better returns, but the social enterprise part of it is as important as the returns that we get from that business okay. and the joy and benefits that's giving to Western Sydney. I mean, we haven't had a zoo of that scale, and I can now see why <laughs> for 104 years. So they're really interesting businesses to operate and run, and they definitely keep a lot of dinner parties occupied. <laughs> True. So let me come to now Hoyt's. Uh, yes. You know, when I visited your office in Sydney, you know, your conference room was full of you with every possible Hollywood star. Tell me about that journey and why did you decide to walk away from it? Okay, well, I think that was probably, if you would have walked into um, those stars are in my office, I probably wasn't in their office, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, that's just part of the deal. Um, we had this opportunity, I was 28, 29 years of age, mm-hmm. and I remember walking down the street in Burke Street in Melbourne, and I said, this is me. I mean, I did sociology at university, I then did a Master of Business Administration, which I've still got to complete, but nearly, um, but I was really had a very political, social, that type of mind, and he was a business, and I loved film, so I thought, here is something that I'm going to love, that I had a passion for. So, we were, you know, most people thought the video was going to kill the movie business. We looked at the real estate, to be honest, and we just thought the real estate was worth more than the business. So if we didn't get the business right and they were right with the video, we'd make enough money out of the real estate so we wouldn't have to worry. So a number of the people that would be competing for that asset that 20th Century Fox owned since 1926, and this was 1982, really slowly, one by one, fell out of the games. And so, you know, it was a bit like um, Steve Bradbury at the Olympics where at the Winter Olympics when everyone else fell over and we happened to be there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had that opportunity and then we had four families in it. One of the, Our family brought out the others because that was the main person in management. Um, and then we went and built the business and then my father-in-law passed away, so I with some other partners bought it. And... It was, it was going particularly well and we built up a good brand and a good business. But what had happened is that these three and four-plex cinemas were being replaced by 20s and 24s. Mm-hmm. The amount of money going in the business worldwide in two or three years was what had gone into it for the last hundred. So it was saturated with too much capital and every major theatre was being built against by somebody. So even though I'd been in a number of businesses where I probably waited too long before I sold, mm-hmm. and so I sold it, Offered at lower prices, with the amount, with the experience and hindsight that I had at the time, and some encouragement from my partners, no doubt. I let go of the baby, you know, with all of us, and and that and that in hindsight proved to be a blessing. Like I was 44, we built this business up to be in the top four in the world, depending on how you measured it, from a zero start, just a vision, mm-hmm. with some support and help from family and some other private investors. But you could just sort of see that it was going to be a period of deep reinvestment and another protracted period of standing still till you could regrow it. And at 44, after you know nearly 20 years on the road, I'd had enough. 
you know, for a year or two after I wasn't sure that it was the right decision. I mean, it was financially and for my family because it was their turn to get some benefit from this, not just me, and I was never around because it's when you're on the road from Australia building a business like that, it's constant travel and constant distraction and your mind's sure. never there. Sure. And um, But as a result of that, I've been able to broaden myself a lot, have more time for family, friends, and and people like you that I would never have met if I'd still been at Hoyts. Yeah, and that's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. And I really Likewise. feel that apart from the confidence again, I've done a lot of work for various government jobs and for my community. Um, it's given me the, the opportunity. Otherwise, I would have been locked into one business. Yes, it would have been probably a bit bigger now. I don't know if it would have been better than where we are today because it's had its ups and downs. And obviously, COVID's been a terrible time for the movie theatre business. But that's why I sold then because I just learned enough. Even though I was 43, I'd sort of been doing this for nearly 20 years and I'd had many businesses from radio to production that we took too long to get out of, that we didn't see the writing on the wall. We weren't proactive enough. And so I wasn't going to let this opportunity okay. slip for either myself or my family. And uh, it was the right decision. And, and every year that goes by, the decision is more right. So uh, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, that's how it happened. Wonderful. So let's now talk a little bit about two things which I'm sure are related. One is your recognition by the Australian government, the yeah. member of the order, and your incredible amount of commitment to philanthropy. Tell me what, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, AM that you have at the end of your name. What, is the, what does that mean? And then uh, yeah. why did you get it? Yeah, well, it's a recognition for work you do in all the things you're at. And so I got it for the work I've done in film, but the work I've done for the Jewish community and for sport and for the arts. Um, so it's quite a wide ranging award from that perspective, but that's because I'm diverse. A lot of people get it for one thing, you know, they invent one wonder drug or something, but my focus is a bit broader than that. So they threw a lot in. But when I left Hoyts at 44, I said, well, got some money what do I really want to do with my life? And I just sort of knew intuitively from, you know, when I went to Israel in 73 and I always had a sort of a community conscience and I loved, I love sport, but I love community and I loved um, the arts. So I thought, well, I'm never going to create another world business again. And um, so I've got to then go a bit wider because the commitment's just too hard and it's too single-minded and it's too, there's too many other things that are at cost. When you've got a business, um, even though that basically everything was lined up, but you can only sell a business when you have a buyer. Mm -hmm. So that's another important part of it. It's not always up to you. So you start to realise that when you've been in business for a, a time that you have to seize the opportunity when it's there because when you might want, oh, this is a better time for me to sell it a year or two too early, there may not be a buyer. So uh, that needs to be kept in mind. So coming back to, you know, you were telling me about your recognition of the member of the order. Yeah. Uh, and you were saying that you got it for three different things. So talk to me about that now. Yes. Well, I think it was just really showed my, the diversity that I've obviously spent a life in entertainment, sport, and the Jewish community and the arts. And so that that's really sort of recognized that in all of those areas. And um it's, I felt the privilege was mine because to have the opportunity to work with people and to actually let, 
enable them to execute their vision as much as your vision and to sort of what they felt were obstacles after what I've done in 20 years of building this business around the world. Mm -hmm. They were sort of minor obstacles to me. So to watch them grow and develop and trusting you that you can get them there, um, in a way I think I've been the biggest beneficiary because I've watched all these organisations grow, grow beyond what they probably would have envisaged for themselves. And so that's been an absolute pleasure. And you also feel doing that, that's not just for you. It's you're contributing to other people's well-being. And that's enormously gratifying. And I've just watched in life as people have financially probably got to their goals earlier in life mm -hmm. a lot, and they're living longer, that a lot of people are starting to put their efforts back into the community that helped them get there in the first place. Whereas... You know, when I started, if you got tapped on the head to do a community job, you wondered what you'd done wrong. You know, so it's like, it was like a life sentence. And you just look at how many years the job went for and you'd be hopeful that you're getting close to the end. But And it's also really a recognition, not just from the people you help, but by your peers. So it fills in, you know, a lot of things that are important in life. So if you're lucky enough to have that opportunity, and one of the – it was lucky for me that that period finished when I was in my early 40s, so a lot of energy – and, and a lot of time to put a lot of effort in. And then one thing just leads to another. And then, you know, as you're moving yourself back into business, that takes a fair while to get back to anywhere near the level of where you left at. So, you know, it's very much the, the first day. It's like going off a cliff. I remember one day I had 5,000 people reporting to me. The next day I was at home. It took me a day and a half to read the paper. I kept answering the doorbell for my wife's assistance because she wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And... It was, uh, it was a new life. So you're having that sort of net in a way of community activities to start to branch into before the businesses grew mm -hmm. helped me a lot as well. But in the end, it's, uh, you know, it, it, you, just, it, you just grow a second career. And for a lot of people, they'll grow th three careers, you know. And uh, the point of it all is to stay healthy and um, stay mentally healthy as well and do things that you like and things that give you give you and other people pleasure. And I think uh, that for everybody that's different, but that's what worked for me. Fabulous. So, Peter, I've got time for a couple of questions for you personally. Yeah. You know, yeah. The first question is that, you know, you've seen so much in your life, so many businesses, so many different things. As you look back, what does success mean to you? Well, success goes much broader than business. Mm-hmm. And it goes much broader even in business than making money. So I think success in business, number one, is to uphold your name. So you do it in an ethical, moral, and honest way. Mm -hmm. You look after every stakeholder in the business, every person that comes to work that relies on you. Um, if you borrow money from banks, you pay them back. If you borrow money from shareholders, um, if your employees, you want to give them a great experience. If your customers, got to be a great experience your supplier. So part of it is to make the world a better place than when you started. And I think we've all got an obligation for that. And you can, to me, so some people, their success is making sure someone's worse off. Mm. And there is a competitive element to it, but it's not necessary that you leave a trail of sort of bodies through your career as you have won every battle pointless and left the other person with nothing. So I don't call that a success in life, in business or anywhere. So Leave something on the table for everyone because at the end of the day, you're all part of the human race. And if you're richer than the other person and you did it by hurting them to get to there, mm -hmm. 
you know, yes, you've got competition, but there's a way you can do it, you know, in the right way. So I think for me that's success. And, uh, you know, everyone has their own view of what success is. Terrific. And my last question to you, and I come back to the pandemic, I think yeah. in Australia you've managed your, uh, your the pandemic very, very well, but it's affected all our lives. Yeah. Are you rethinking your life in a new world order? With the pandemic, we've all had more time. We've had more time at home, more time with our family, uh, less rushing uh, because we're not traveling as much and we're not going out and place to place. So that's been a bit of a pleasure. We can actually sit back, do things properly. And to be fair, we've probably got about the right time that we need, whereas before we just do things in a much more rushed and hurried fashion because we thought we knew the answer before we started so it's just a matter of going through the mm. you know just going through a process really so i've learned that you make better decisions you have more time to listen mm-hmm. and i think this will be with us for a while because uh the other thing the pandemic made us all realize that we're all equal you know the pandemic's very non-discriminatory it doesn't care if you're the leader of the country or you know wherever you are so um, I think you get a much better sort of uh, feeling of life, humanity, and where you fit into it. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that after this that we will travel a bit less. We will try to do things. In a, I'll try to take on less things, really, and try to do less things better. And I'll try to sleep more, which has, I think, been good out of this. And, I'm, and everyone's been a lot healthier during this pandemic. And uh, so that your productivity goes up a lot more when you're healthy more of the time. So I, I think that, you know, I think a lot of people say that the, the difficulty will be is that once things start ramping up again, the competitive juices come out of everybody. People are worried, you know, they get this fear of missing out that they've, uh, somebody's passed them on the train. It's a little bit easier if you're a bit older, if you're a bit younger and you're not where you want to be, you've got to rush around a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these are wonderful to say when you're in the middle of something versus when you're at the other side. But if I look at when I've given, when I've sort of done a lot of talks like this, and I've spoken to people and what I've said, I've normally pretty well followed through. And so I'm confident that that part of it has been much better. My children are used to having me around now. So um, that's now more permanent. I take one or two days mornings off where I just spend time with my, my grandchild and hopefully we'll have some more. And I've just found that I've had more time to do things. I'm doing them better. And uh, so hopefully that'll continue and I've got time. So I won't get myself in a position where I'm just rushing from place to place and, and don't have time for people. But uh, that will take a bit of a reordering of priorities. And I'm not on my own. I've got a family. I've got a wife. And it's up to all of us to agree on that. But there's got to be some positive things out of this. And maybe going to restaurants and travel is overrated. I'll probably... Board meetings should always be on Zoom. I don't know if they will be. Management meetings should not be on Zoom because it's uh, you have to be close to the people you're collaborating with. But as far as the boards I'm on, Zoom's perfect and you don't have to travel as much. But let's see where that goes to. And that, I mean, that just having board meetings on Zoom is an extra three or four hours a week. But uh, let's hope that all these great uh, pronouncements we make during this period so some of the better things will hold through and enable us to go forward. I agree. Pete, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. I've always enjoyed my long conversations with you and 
Thank you for coming and speaking to me on my podcast, videocast, and I wish you lots and lots of happiness, health, and success. Thanks so much, Ashutosh. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, as I've enjoyed your company for now many years. So good luck with everything that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.